0: When we're considering inputs, what that question gets at is Do you guys do a good job of after you have made the promise to me that I can be successful by accepting me? You made me that promise when you said, Yes, you can come to school here. Because we're all, it's good faith, right? We're not going to admit students that were like, You're not really going to graduate, but we just need you for a little while. I hope not. So you have made a promise, forget about your guidebooks and your walk and all of that kind of stuff. When you accept a student, you're telling them you can be successful here. And the question of do students like me, that look like me, that are first generation students, that have accessibility needs, that are women, whatever that thing is, do you graduate students like me from here? Happy Tuesday. Hello, everyone joining us.
1: It's another cap and gown. I'm Rachel
0: Phillips-Buck, the VP for Student Success. Joined by Matt Boisvert, um, our president. Good to see you all.
1: Great, to see everyone.
0: Yeah, and especially today, because I know that it is a busy, busy time on our campuses. So thank you guys for joining. Um, Those of you who are joining us, uh, hey, Holly, joining us later in the week, thank you for making time uh, for cap and gown. We're really excited to spend time with you today talking about conditions for student success, specifically about commitment. So I'm looking forward to this. Matt, do you want to talk about how to get connected to us?
1: I think, yeah, absolutely. It's really easy. Just go to taplinkcc link.cc slash resources. That's all the ways you can see all the things that we're doing. You can find us on LinkedIn. Of course, um, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, if you want to join us live uh, through Zoom, uh, but also all of our YouTube and, and podcasts, you can um, access all of that from going to our tap link. Absolutely.
0: Okay. So let me tell you what we're going to talk about today. State of the Union, which we are going to spend a lot of time on State of the Union because there are some really awesome things going on that I want to highlight for you guys. Um, And then we're going to pause for just a minute because remember conditions for student success and retention. We're going to do just like a little reminder of um, some of the context as we're talking about retention and student success. and then. This is one of my favorite things that you teach, Matt, about the Promise Triangle. So we're going to spend some time there and then, like always, we'll give you action items.
1: It's great. Okay, so can State I Let's start with
0: ahead. the State of the Union? Okay. I am very happy about these State of the Union things because I think there's some really great conversations to be had around each of these articles. So the first one is the big talk of the day that Pfizer... Got their vaccine approved, so it's no longer the um, what do they call it? Like emergency. emergency. Um, so it's being rebranded. Of course, <laughs> it's called Comarnity. Okay,
1: Comer- Comernity. Comarnity. Okay.
0: So when you see that uh, commercials for that, you'll know what that is. But basically, what this just means is that a lot of schools now feel like they can make requirements for students to get them. Although, you know, we've been talking for a long time about campuses who've been working hard to incentivize without having to do any sort of mandate. Um, Richmond, uh, University of Richmond is a great example. So they have not done a mask mandate, but they are at 93% vaccination. So really exciting to see. And they have really pressed... just taking care of their community that everyone wants to be their opening in person they're not doing hybrid classes and they're saying the way for us to have a full experience together is for everybody you know to go get vaccinated so i'll be interested to see what happens um, on different campuses with that news but that's not the most exciting thing if you can believe it okay there's an article inside higher ed it's called the human cost of stranded credits okay so Withholding course credits from students because of outstanding balances on unpaid fees and tuition owed to their college has a long lasting negative expect, uh, effects, especially on our low income students and students of color. So Ithaca SNR report, which is a higher education consulting firm, just did this study um, in the last year. It estimates students nationwide owe colleges and universities up to $15 billion in unpaid fees and about 6.6 million students might be weighed down by stranded credits. So this is getting increased attention because in the middle of the pandemic, you have a lot of community colleges, minority serving institutions using their Corona money to wipe out debt for students. More than 20 historically black colleges and universities cleared out students' outstanding balances with their corona money. So, Matt, first of all, you and I were talking about stranded credits, which is the worst of the worst for a student who does not finish college.
1: Absolutely. And this is a thing that we've talked about. Like, as we go to a school, we try to understand what is the policy at the business office, especially for a lot of our schools where every, every student matters. Um, for, you know, them to be able to meet their enrollment goals. So, um, so many times when you think about, well, it goes back to UT San Antonio. uh, They were the ones who really brought this to my attention where they did a study and they found that we have students who stopped because they had $150 in parking tickets and they, and they couldn't pay. And so just that and so one they can't,
0: thing. yeah, they can't go anywhere else. They can't finish their degree because of this amount of money. So the city, um, university of New York just released transcripts of students and graduates with unpaid tuitions and fees and lifted financial holds on 74,000 student accounts during the pandemic, which wow. is amazing. Yeah. Um, Trinity Washington University, which is a private Hispanic serving and predominantly Black institution in DC, has a policy of withholding credits and not prohibiting, or sorry, and prohibiting students from re enrolling if they owe $4,000 or more. They just waived that policy for the 2020 2021 school year um, and used their COVID relief funds to cover $2.3 million in unpaid balances for 535 undergraduates. Wow. So lifting of that now all of a sudden means that they can enroll. It says um, Trinity, Trinity says they usually lose between 200 and 300 students per year wow. because of debt to the institution. So their average student income is $25,000. So these are students who really do not have the money to pay $4,000 $4, so that they can re-enroll. Yeah.
1: yeah. So Rachel, just thinking about that, you know, it, it seems like for a lot of schools, they, they act like uh, students' credits are, it's interesting that we call them credits, but that they're, that they're it's not on credit, it's on layaway. Like, right. oh no, you can't have it until it's fully paid off. And I just wonder... If you could invest in that student or give them the credit and say, hey, we know you're going to be more likely able to pay for this once you graduate. It's a whole point. So Yeah.
0: So it's really interesting. Wayne, yeah. Wayne State uh, University in Detroit has this whole program that they were working with their school, their students for. What they said was they identified a large number of students at their school. Many of them had close to a hundred credits but we're not done yet. So we're not really talking about like freshmen came for their first year and then that's it. We're saying like they have had sustained progress forward academically and then something happened where they couldn't pay for their credits. So wow. one of my challenges is for at all of our institutions to be thinking about those stranded credits and how we are helping students get transcripts, re-enroll in classes, how do we give them sort of this pipeline to be able to move forward um, to be successful? I love that so much. That's great. Okay, a new law was just passed in Oregon about transparency in textbook prices. So um, the governor just signed this into law in June. It says that public institutions need to prominently display at least 75% of the estimated cost for credit course materials by the time a student enrolls for the course. So you have to say like, yes, it's going to cost you this much intuition, but then this is what the book is going to cost you. And really what they're trying to do is just make it more accessible. You can imagine, I mean, when we were in school, books were expensive, much less now hundreds and hundreds of dollars um, that you might not be counting on. You enroll in the course and then you go and you have to
1: pay for these books. So
0: you were saying, Matt, I mean, I love the model of just like include
1: books. Right. Well, I mean, is this required for this class? Yes, these are all required. So yeah.
0: Yeah, so we should just include books and then we don't have that same um, difficulty. Okay, this is another one that I'm super excited about. It's, hard, it's a tongue twister, but it's really important. Fee-free college applications gain popularity. <clears throat> so I like this one because Trinity College in Connecticut, different Trinity than we talked about before, um, has just omitted their application fee. When they did that, Um, applications and those committed to enroll in Trinity for first-generation college students jumped from 8% to 12%. So the idea is that this application fee is keeping some first-generation students from applying to um, different schools. Just to give you context, Stanford, I think, has the highest application fee. It's $90, but Stanford costs $79,000 a year to go to. So a lot of schools are like between fifty dollars and seventy dollars for the application fee. Um, Dickinson Dickinson College in Pennsylvania is waiving, waiving their $65 fee for anyone who fills out the application. Here's what's so interesting, Matt. Dickinson had 6,300 applications when they had their $65 fee. Okay, So that's $400,000 in lost revenue because they've waived this application fee. So you have some people who are like, we cannot waive this fee because it's a huge chunk, but right? To be
1: honest, Rachel, no one, no one at a university should be building application fees into the revenue model. Like, hey, the right. way we're going to stay solvent is application fees.
0: So when this school, the, um, so McDaniels College did this three years ago, when they dropped their application fee, which was $55, their applications increased 30%. And they got 5,000 applications last year. So basically, it's this measurement of like, if we get more people to apply and we have a better idea of, you know, who would like to come to our school if we're not doing that application, then you can enroll them and lead them through stu- to student success and get tuition money from them instead of, you know, depending on your $65 fee for your half million dollars um, in, in application fee. The other weird thing, Matt, is that you have um, some enrollment managers saying, We don't like dropping the application fee because it messes up our yields. You get a lot more people, but then maybe they don't really want to go to your school. And so there's a lot of conversation around kind of the business practice of dropping this, but I don't think anyone would question whether or not for students, especially um, students who are first generation or Pell Grant recipients, those sorts of things, it's a great passageway into your institution.
1: I would think... There's got to be some middle ground where you where you could say, based on you know the, the student's financial need, hey, we're going to give you a, either a, a refund of that or we're going to yeah, give you a,
0: so a waiver. So some schools, yeah, some schools are saying that, that if you apply, if you say, hey, will you please give me a waiver for this, that they would never turn anybody down. So surely there's some middle ground in it. Okay, I have two more for you. Um, Ozark Community College is offering students free breakfast which I think we're seeing at a lot of um, like our, um, all of our AISD K-12 in in our um, state or city are doing this, offering free breakfast to students. This is a community college. Here's what I think is fascinating. So the Missouri College piloted Eagle Breakfast um, at its Springfield campus for January, 2021, but now they're gonna expand to all six of their campuses. Okay. during the spring 2021 semester, 635 students participated in Eagle Breakfast, including 231 Pell recipients and 45 veterans. The institution found that those who took advantage of the program received better grades on midterms and final exams. Eighty nine percent of the Eagle Breakfast participants finished their spring classes compared to 83 percent of those who did not participate. OK, so six percent difference and 78 percent of Eagle Breakfast participants got a C or higher in all of their courses compared to 73 percent of their classmates who did not participate. So five percent difference. So this is, again, they're applying covid funds. But I love this because it's such a great example of identify, connect, solve and measure. Right.
1: Absolutely. Well, like,
0: you're investing. It makes a difference. We should do that more.
1: And also I just think about how that student's day has changed. So how you've changed behavior, maybe, you know, these are students who not only are they being fed, but they're starting their day, maybe focused. This gives them that space yeah. to be focused on the work that they have ahead. Um, but it also, I mean, as we're talking about commitment to student success and today, as we talk about your promise, it's going to be really neat to see how that lines up with, with everything we're talking about.
0: Yeah, I love that. Okay, and the last one's a short one. You guys remember West Virginia Wesleyan College uh, who was going to charge students $750 to if, if they're got, not if they got vaccinated. COVID. Well, if they're not vaccinated, not if they got COVID, but just in general. Like if you want to come, they changed their mind. They Apparently that was not going great. And so now they're like, or we will just charge you $5 every time we test you.
1: Okay. That's
0: probably, probably a better idea. So I, I told you last time, I didn't think it was a great idea to do that. I didn't think it was gonna rub people the right way. So they apparently got some feedback about that and they have uh, changed their mind. And that is the State of the Union. I think you should start summing up that way, don't you? And that is the State of the Union.
1: I like that's it. Great, Thank you, Rachel. As we <laughs> talked about last week and introduced, uh, conditions for student success, which comes from Vincent Tinto. We uh, last week we just talked about it, kind of a high level. These six different conditions, and today we're going to focus on commitment. And um, again, you know, just thinking about Tinto and and his whole mindset was, you cannot say that you're giving access or admitting students without supporting them. If if you don't support them. That is not opportunity. And so-
0: As we're talking about having debts and stranded credit, right? That is not opportunity. That's actually worse off than if they hadn't had that access.
1: A hundred hours stranded, that is not opportunity.
0: Oh, for sure not. So I do want to talk about, um, before we dive into commitment, I just want to give some context for um, student success and retention. And I'm very curious for those of you who are joining us, Who is in charge of retention on your campus? You all know this is a loaded question um, because I'm going to tell you about the admissions model and how it's evolved and how it's very similar to retention. But if you have somebody on your campus who is in charge of retention or in charge of student success, will you please chat what the name, what the title is of that person? Um, I'm really curious because schools do this in such different ways and part of you know, related to who's in charge of retention, I always ask, what are they actually in charge of, right? Like, so do they have power to say, we're going to change this or we're going to do this or we're going to do this differently? So what are they actually in charge of? What do they have power or control over? And then also, um, how are they making decisions that then are going to uh, affect that retention Um equation that we've been talking about. Yeah. So we have people who kind of have a task force everybody. So um Hey Roseboom saying the senior director for student success is in charge of retention. Matt, you and I have talked about how retention continues to develop like admissions did, which you remember 20 or 30 years ago when you said who's in charge of admissions everybody was. Right. Everybody's like, tell your friends they should come to school here. It was not like this. um...
1: The idea of enrollment management as a profession didn't really start until the mid 80s. And right. So now you start to see that where, as Dr. Roseboom is pointing out, they they while everyone we do have a person who is a director for student success.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So thinking about like Lindsay is saying, right? Like there is a person who has this title of student success specialist, depending on where you are, sometimes it's under academic success. Sometimes it's on the student development side of the house. There are a lot of different models for how schools are um, thinking about retention. And Matt, you and I always say retention very similarly to admissions we recommend that the person in charge of retention directly reports to the president or somebody very, very high up on the inst- in the institution because retention, remember, is an outcome of that equation, right. which is inputs and then your institutional factors. And so if you don't have somebody who's able to exert some influence and in decision making on both of those things, but somehow is responsible for the outcome, that's a really hard place Um For anyone to be.
1: And I would say now, and and another challenge is how close are they to other campus partners, especially enrollment management, who's in in so involved on shaping that input for your campus.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because like we talked about last week, if you change that input, then you've got to change a lot of your institutional factors and other things that you do. So I also would just like to say in terms of context, remember that retention changes in small numbers. So A 1% increase, a 2% increase, increase, 3%, those are good increases. And that comes after a lot of really hard work. It will make a difference on your institution's financial health, even those small changes. Um, You know why we get so excited when we have a lot of schools who've worked with us and have 12% increases or 10% increases. That's amazing. And it does fundamentally change their institutional health, but also small changes can add up and really make a difference. So I love that.
1: And I think sustainable. So, you know, when when you're having year over year more smaller gains, what you're doing is is you're shaping your culture. And as we talk about just the overall that the dynamic on your campus to be able to manage the students that you are serving. And so yeah. um, definitely the schools that have those 10, 12%, we love it. What they've done is a significant investment and a change in culture uh, that has led them to that
0: real commitment, right? That is real commitment to this issue of student success and retention. Okay. The last thing before we move on to the promise triangle, which I'm trying to restrain my excitement about because I really do love it (laughs) is I'm thinking about um, how often we hear on a campus, a sort of made up number of retention goal and so, you know, the president is like, I want to increase it 10% or I think we should be at 87 or you have to do like, so it's very hard to figure out the right way to, to get at the goal. Um, and also if it is not, if it's not arrived at in some sort of logical way, I'm very demoralized, right? If I'm a practitioner, yeah. cause I'm just like. How, how is that possible for me to be able to get there? So you guys, you and Viva with Retention Intelligence actually help schools work towards a manageable goal for retention, right?
1: Yeah, so just having that understanding. I think one of the, one of the scary things is when your retention goal is set by someone on the financial side and they're, they're isolated from all the work that goes on yeah. in, in the black box. And they're separated really from the factors on the input side that could negatively impact uh, retention rates historically. So, so when, when a CFO comes and just says, well, I think we're, we'll, be, you know, we'll hit our, our budgets if we get to 76% and you're looking at their data and it's, it's, it's going to be very challenging for them to get to that place and the stress that that then places on the people on the front lines yeah. who are doing the engagement and also the stress in the relationship between enrollment management and the people who are in, engaged in student success definitely stress on the relationship with faculty who see that. Yeah. So, so how do you come to what, what is a, a realistic goal when, it, when you're setting a retention number? I mean, that's very important and you have to know what your inputs are. So given where we are right now in our capacity, like we talked about last week, to serve our inputs, then what should we expect? And this is where Viva and I, Viva built an incredible uh, workbook based on all of the iPads and college scorecard data, where we're now able to look at, um, okay, based on this institution, who are all the, their comparable schools, looking at, a wide range of factors, and, and a lot of times it's interesting because they're looking, when we're looking at at who we would say, based on input, these are comparable schools, these are um, a, a comp group that, that that institution has never looked at before you know because you you're a-
0: thinking Matt, about not like where are you it's not admission it's not where are you losing students like they're going to either go to this school or this school you're actually looking at like what are institutions that if we're looking at the input they have similar pell grant recipients they have similar act's right they have similar stem cell um majors
1: stem yeah not stem
0: stem, 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 cell. <laughs> STEM majors <clears throat> <laughs> different
1: that's a different, that's a different that's thing different. Right, and, and so being being able to have an understanding of okay, so this is the percentage of our population that are uh, first generation, that are Pell recipients, that receive federal loans. Looking at ACT, SAT, which this year you can kind of throw that out because those are optional now, but also like the size of the institution, how selective is the institution, um, and and also where is that institution located? Is this a rural campus? Is this a, a suburban or in, you know, a, an urban environment? All of those things influence exactly what we were saying last week. So I, I love, you know, thinking about a school where um, I was able to sit across from the president and show these are schools that we would say are comps. There's 16. You're right now ranked number 10 in retention. If we just move you to the middle, this is where we think, we think you should be at least in the middle which would increase your retention goal by five percent and i feel very confident with ferris 360 we can get you there um and then you have the stretch goal of the school that's remarkable fit all the same inputs but i mean they're they're on the list of colleges that change students lives like they're all in they've they've invested a lot committed yeah they're committed so so it is helpful to to build that out and to go to your cfo and say you know, you set a goal of 78%, that would top out the best school in our um, list of comps. And given the,
0: given the students that we are serving, this is what we can expect yeah. reasonably. Okay, so I think that that's an important piece. We're happy to talk um, with any or all of you about kind of that process, because I think it is um, pretty remarkable for retention intelligence to be able to deliver that to schools. And to have a reasonable conversation about what you should be shooting for and how you can think, you know, to increase. All right. So now, Matt, let's move on to the Promise Triangle. And I'm going to set it up and then you and I will have some conversations as you explain this to us. But the Promise Triangle is really a way for us to measure and understand commitment on a campus. And it's um A way for us to kind of very specifically break down different places where you need commitment in order to make a difference. And a way for all of our listeners to identify both the things that you are killing it at and then also the places where you're like, hey, that is a place where we struggle and we really have some difficulty. So will you explain this to us?
1: Yeah, so... Thank you, Rachel. Um, The the promise triangle comes from my background in services marketing and understanding what's happening for the kind of the meta institution brand. Um, If you think about your institution, what I'm saying is it's your leadership. It's all of your brochures and your website and your mission statement. And what are you saying to um, parents and to students about who you are? And so that's that first top piece is your institution. Yeah.
0: All right. I just was going to describe this for those of you who are joining us on podcast. So if you think about a triangle at the very top of that triangle, it's your institution. To the left, it's faculty and staff at that point. And then on the right, it's students. So imagine that, that triangle with all of those different elements.
1: Okay. So the, the, ultimately what this should, should lead to is, okay, so what are we promising and how are we lining all of these things up? in our interactions between the institution and uh, the students the interaction between the students and the faculty and staff and then also faculty and staff and the institution itself so let me go a little bit further uh, in depth here if we just look at between the institution and the students this again is is the the interaction where the promises are being made this is where the you're saying this is who we are. This is why you should come here. This is what we deliver when you're here, and this is the outcome you should expect uh, while you're uh, when you leave here. And so, there's a whole lot of promises that are made in that. And one of the one of the challenges is that um, a couple of things. You, I'm sure for none of our listeners, you've ever been in a situation where the institution over promised, uh, but it happens where you're saying, you know, this is. This is all this is all that you can experience you you're going to have a great time, but um, they haven't told anyone about that so
0: so Matt I'm thinking about just like the like visit day. Just to break down every element of that, right? Where it's like, here's the cafeteria. We are promising you this is what it's going to be like. And, you know, on some campuses, it's like, you know, it's a visit day because the food's way better, <laughs> right? That would be an over promise. Like, oh, we have steak every day. No, just that on days when these students are here. These are the res halls that you're going to be in. This is the faculty member that we're going to take you to so that you can hear a class because he's a superstar. But all of these things are promises that we are making our students about what their experience is going to be like on campus. Um, and I'm very curious in this messaging what institutions are saying about student success. Because there is this like very rosy picture of look, and then here's what you're going to experience here. And you and I talk about like, when somebody says, "Um, here's the magnet for beacon on your campus, if something happens with your student, you know, you can call them parents and and, uh, students don't think that that's about them. Right. They think I'm not going to have any trouble. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be great. Right. Yeah. Do you want to say more about the student success? Um,
1: well, so you have case, you have the case where schools say a lot, and they promise a lot, and then um, you also have the case where there's a lot happening, in this in the the institution doesn't know all that's happening, and so it's not a part of the promise. It's not communicated. Students and parents aren't prospective students uh, are not hearing about that, and so. Um, that's a real missed opportunity. So I think about Centenary and how remarkable they are um, with their accessibility services and, and how that word's gotten out. Well, imagine if, if you're doing all that work and the people over in admissions don't know that and don't know how to communicate about that. That's a really uh, sad missed opportunity. So that does happen. Um, that's, that's one of those fun things. Rachel, I think about your work with Discovery and how you were building that and, and that became like, oh, we need to do a better job of telling that all the work that goes into career exploration because it really is remarkable. So, so there may be cases where uh, promises should be made, should be communicated because it, it's an opportunity to reach new students. But one thing that I was thinking about on this side of making promises is through the lens of student success. You know, so a, as you described campus tours, and everything—it's you know everything—is the best. We make sure they see all, all of the best parts of the university. Um, if you were to say to to uh, your leadership, "Hey, I want to I want to build a student success tour, and I would like for you to go on that tour with us," and and so through the lens of a student who is that student who needs the most help, they're at risk. They're coming in, maybe they're first gen, they're Pell they have a lower act whatever the factors are for your campus we want to build a tour a student success tour what would go into that tour where would you take them and what would you say and for a lot of our schools there are great things to say that leadership has no idea is going on but there are other things like hey you know we're going to go to the basement of this building because that's where you stuck us or the person who's doing all of this great work is not even on campus so if we want to give them access to that, to that person, we're going to have to take a golf cart and drive across the street into this uh, building that's, that's not even connected to the campus, right?
0: Yeah, so Matt, thinking that through just in terms of where are the places and the people that are built specifically for student success that you would want to take parents to, um, and I'm thinking about so many of our schools that, you know, I, when I talk about holistic care of our students and they've named Ferris 360 something on their campus and I'm like, put it in the syllabus, put it on the website, talk about it. Like, this is a place where we can say, oh, look, we have this whole mechanism for student success. People are going to see you and we're going to connect with you and we're going to solve these problems. And that is a really tangible, clear communication that we have a soft place for you to land if you struggle, right? Yes. So I love that.
1: Student success tours. Um, also, if you're a remarkable campus and you could actually build out a great tour, put it on as, as a, an option for parents and students to opt into because um, you might be surprised at the result from that. All right, so the the next one that I want to talk about is is at the bottom of the triangle it's the kind of moment of truth it's the it's. Yes, sorry
0: I wanted to say one more thing that I just remembered, but I think it's very important. Um, I just wanted to to talk about this question do students like me graduate from here.
1: Oh that's right,
0: which I think is so important because. um, When we're considering inputs. What that question gets at is do you guys do a good job of after you have made the promise to me that I can be successful by accepting me? You made me that promise when you said, yes, you can come to school here because we're all, it's good faith, right? We're not going to admit students that were like, you're not really going to graduate, but we just need you for a little while. I hope not. So you have made a promise. Forget about your guidebooks and your walk and all of that kind of stuff. When you accept a student, you're telling them, you can be successful here. And the question of do students like me, that look like me, that are first generation students, that have accessibility needs, that are women, whatever that thing is, do you graduate students like me from here? And um, there are gonna be places at each of our institutions where the answer is no, we don't. There are also gonna be places where we say, absolutely. We are awesome at graduating students like you. Here's all of the things that we do that, that create a pathway for you to be successful. And I want to talk about that all day long, right? So like you were saying, deciding students, do, do deciding students graduate from here? Absolutely. Here's how we make sure that they do. Here's everything that we do, and you're going to love it. So that you've made a promise when you accept them. And the question of do students like me graduate from here, I think are really, really weighty things for us to, to think about. Okay, sorry, thank you.
1: So the, the next piece of this promise triangle is the exchange between faculty and students and staff and students. It is a lot of times a moment of, of truth exchange. Um, this is the part where students decide whether or not the promises that were made are kept. And so exactly to what you're saying, if you tell me that I, I'm accepted, I'm believing you think I can be successful here, who, what resources do you have? Who who can I interact with? Um, but if, if you think about that, the keeping the promises, there's a whole lot that, that goes into that. When I think about um, so a commit, commitment to student success, what does that look like in this exchange? Well, one, that's why schools, a lot of our Ferris schools have 100% faculty completion rates on the stoplight survey. That is that is an expression of a commitment to student success. In this exchange, I see my students, I know those who are most at risk, and I'm gonna send in a, a red light on them. I love that. Also, when you think about all the, all the things that you do, advising, trio services, um, the interaction in res halls with RAs, um, you know, obviously in the classroom, but, but uh, also um, things like tutoring uh, services, we have, you know, schools where um, the the retention rate of students who go to the tutoring services is 90%, pretty remarkable. Uh, that's, that is an, a, a way of demonstrating that commitment to student success. Um, and then also, as you talked about earlier, with financial aid, so what are we doing when a student comes in and they say they can't pay their bill, how do we respond to them? Uh, do we have empathy? Are we responsive? Do we assure them that they can be successful and we're going to help them find um, resources to help them stay, right? So w- when I think about this, we all know um, the, the people matter, the people that you hire matter, the people on, on your team matter, and the, the people engaging those students, having that heart for the work a lot of i mean for for most of our schools, we see a deep personal commitment to that. and so that's not typically the issue um, the the drive uh, to to serve. Sometimes you have duds, but mostly we've we have high achievers who really want the best. Um, and And in this exchange, going back to our um, student success funnel, the role of measurement in this is really important because when we have success, like tutoring is 90% retention, we need to then communicate that back to the institution so that they can, can deliver that news um, as they're making promises and bring awareness to the great work that's going on. So,
0: Yeah, I think of this as like where the rubber hits the road, meets Absolutely. the road. Um, <laughs> where it's like, we're telling this thing, but every time an employee or a staff member connects to a student and solves a problem, that is its own thing. And maybe we talked about it, maybe we promised it, maybe we didn't, right? But it is these one-on-one or small group or anytime you have that connect and solve piece between an employee, an actual person and the student. Um, and I think that it's such an important so Matt as you said like people in in higher ed really believe in the work. We have to be reminded of it sometimes, but I would say the distinction I would make between an institutional promise like this is what we expect you to do and then my delivering on it and how so many of us we just do good work because we love it and we want to do it and that we're, that's a personal commitment. Maybe the institution isn't talking about it and maybe they're not resourcing it, but I am personally committed to being present with my students, seeing them and helping them. And the difficulty with it not being an institutional commitment is that people will say Rachel was awesome at her job, but that this institution really didn't do a great job, right? So, and, and we have had that experience where it's like, this advisor is doing a great job, but it is not indicative of how I've been treated generally by the institution. So right. it's a really interesting piece where you have personal commitment versus institutional commitment in that person to person and engagement.
1: So I, I wanted to end on this last piece, which is um, you know, the, the side of the triangle, that's the interaction between the institution and faculty and staff, Um, and and this is where you're enabling the promise. And it it does come down to moving beyond personal commitment, the people at the bottom who are engaging the students in that moment of truth, and it looks at, is the institution invested in this? Are they driving, showing a commitment to student success beyond just burning up uh, employees, right? So, Which,
0: can we just pause there for a minute? Because you and I have talked about this many times that when you work at a place where you have personal commitment, but you are not being resourced, the promises are not being enabled, um, people get burnt out because it's not just a job that we go to and we do a thing and we go home. We really believe in it. We are personally committed to it. And so we do get spent we are spending people if we are not spending money resourcing the things that they are trying to accomplish. Right. And so I think uh, thinking about the last almost two years, um, how we're just piling on more stuff with COVID and more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. I think so many people are just feeling like, man, I would really like to get some resourcing of the promise besides my personal commitment to doing good work and helping our students because it's exhausting, right?
1: Yeah, so I'm thinking about this again, I guess I'm hammering it, but the student success tour, <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing on that tour? What are you talking about? Well, this is a part of that. How is the institution enabling the promise of student success? And so when you look at, um, as you and I talk about, this, what is the system for student success? what are the, all of the, the resources? How is the institution investing in it besides um, the people on the front lines? So looking at, of course, with people, is the institution um, hiring, training, um, equipping people with what they need and, and the right people? I love, uh, a friend of mine who's joining us today sent me a job description uh, from from an institution, and I love it because it's like they know who they are, they know what they're wanting to accomplish, and how they want to engage students, and they're shaping their questions around that. And so that higher training, rewarding people is so important. Not just watching them burn out. And then when when we talk about processes, um, you know, the process of an unpaid balance matters. The process of registration. How do we get um, students who aren't familiar with, the, with, with college registration, how do we pre- prepare that so that we can have a great experience for them? Um, and, and as we look at retention by res halls, what's the process for how we fill a res hall? What's the mix there? All of that is, is, should be shaped around um, we need to enable student success. So we're going to make good decisions. We're going to craft our processes the right way. And then as you and I, of course, with technology, what, how are you going to be able to manage all of these things? Not just early alert, but overall student success, not for first-time freshmen, but all the way through to graduation. How do we measure that? Um, all, all of the other things that have been added to your plate with, with things like conduct um, and now COVID, right? And then ultimately, um, your investment in spaces. So is this a student success basement or is this a student success center or?
0: Matt, you have to explain the reason you're saying that is because when you and I worked at an institution, we were in the basement we and were. we would have cricket invasions <laughs> where I would be trying to do advising with the student and there would be a cricket climbing up the wall and I would have to be like, excuse me for a minute, let me kill it. That, that wasn't. It didn't. didn't inspire a lot of confidence, you know, that we were like high real estate areas.
1: Well, oh awesome. that is true. Um, that is true. So, so true. would you put it on the tour? That's the question.
0: Right. For sure. Um, so another part of this resourcing the promise is um, how can we tell so in the same way you're talking about spaces, like what is tangible evidence? What are things that we can see and touch that tell us this is something we are committed to, that we are interested in, that we are investing in, right? And um, you have a great example of what was it when you first took over advising for the College of Business?
1: Yeah, so there, yes. So when, when I was um, the director of uh, the... Career Development Center um, for the College of Business, advising was a a part of that. And my student workers were, we had these great degree plans that students would be able to use tangible. They'd be able to to, um, use that to to register for classes and to know what their, their path was. But the student workers were making copies of it on salmon colored paper, crooked. And it's like, okay, so for the next four years, this is, this is what I have to like, show progress and guide me. Along. For the
0: thousands of dollars that I'm paying for this very important degree, I've got a crooked degree plan.
1: Yeah, so and it
0: doesn't seem like a huge thing, right? But it does. When you hand me that piece of paper, I'm gonna be like, oh, this is not important.
1: This just doesn't seem as significant as should so so that was an easy fix for us like hey we need these to look great high quality thicker paper something a student would be you know not crumble up yeah would yeah, be happy to have so yeah
0: so it's such a great example of the institution being able to give you what you need to communicate and and actually be resourced right for this um piece so i'm really curious we actually have a poll question Um, that's around this idea of if you are going to improve student success, and let's put the triangle back up so you can see it, you would invest more in either making the promise, so what the institution is telling students and, and parents, delivering on the promise which is what faculty and staff are doing when they're engaging with students or resourcing the promise enabling the promise which is the institution giving you what you need to be able to um, to do so let's see a lot vast majority resourcing the promise and then delivering on the promise i think our schools are pretty good at making the promise They have invested a lot of time and energy in making sure that they can tell that story, rightfully so, because our schools do a lot of really amazing things. Um, But definitely, I think resourcing the promise is a place where we can have some frustration um, about the things that we need that we're not getting. So,
1: Well, I appreciate the responses to that. It's so important. So you'll see um, I. there are, there are little lines on each side of the triangle to just say they have, they have to be in alignment um, equal. Because if, if you have an oversighted, we're making a lot of promises, but we're not good at keeping them and we're really not good at enabling, then you're going to have a retention problem, right? Because you're, what that shows is a lack of commitment to student success. Yeah. And so just looking at, okay, how do we make sure all of these sides know the same things. We're not telling students something that isn't true. We're not telling uh, faculty they have to do something that we're not enabling them to do. Um, you know, so all of these things, bringing that together and, and being kind of an equal uh, resourcing for each side of this triangle is one of the ways that your, as Tinto starts off with commitment, and why it's important. This is a way to be able to communicate across campus, your commitment to student success.
0: Yeah, I love that. I was thinking about last week, how I asked everybody your action item was, I want you to think about your inputs. I want you to think about the students that are coming in and to talk about these are the kinds of students that we have, they're athletes, they are academically underprepared. they are coming from far away. So on the left side of your page, you would have all of those inputs written down. And then we were talking about institutional factors that you should be able to draw a line from students who don't have a major to the um discovery program right and say this is the way that we are resourcing that group of students yeah. and that for any one of those inputs if you draw a line <laughs> to the right side of your page and there's nothing to write there that's a place where we need to start focusing on but i was thinking Matt, a way to add to that even further than is to look at all of those institutional supports that you have and to write out how those things are being enabled um, what is the tangible evidence? Do you have enough people? Do you have a space? Do you have what you need? Thinking about when I inherited our program for students who, who didn't have their major yet, first of all, I somebody said like, hey, now you're in charge of this program. And I literally could not find any evidence of what the thing was. I couldn't find like a list of students that were associated with it. I didn't have any space. There was no marketing material. There was a, There was like a paragraph in the student handbook about what this thing was, but that's all there was. And I remember spending weeks going around to different people and saying, help me understand. I'm glad we have this name, but there is no resourcing this thing that you think is so important. And then slowly building, like, here's what I need. I need marketing and I need space and I need people and I need in order to then make an impact on this group of students. So I think it would be really interesting to draw a line from inputs to then resources. And then what is the way that we're making sure that those resources can be successful? And
1: I would add to that, Rachel, when you say resources, not this year, but for the long term. Yeah, the long term investment, because if you're just saying, you know, well, here are resources for this program this year but you're not invested in this program for the long run, then it's, it's not a commitment. So
0: I am really excited, actually, about being able to use the Promise Triangle to talk about Whether or not an institution is committed. Because I think, remember, we're talking about those like made up, like, yes, and we're going to increase our retention this much and we're going to improve student success this much. But actually being able to say, okay, well, here are the triangle that is going to help us make sure we're investing in the right places. And how are we going to then invest in long term um, resourcing? How are we going to invest in our people? And how are we going to make sure we're telling the right uh, things I see that you're sharing your screen, but I can't see anything. It's black. Can you start? Nope. There we go. Yep. It's back down. Right. Okay. So my action items for you guys is I would draw this triangle. Um, and I would think about where you can point specifically to a thing on any one of these sides. So I was thinking about in making the promises, you can point to your visit days and your guidebook and your website and your orientation, all of those things that are really connected to how we are making the promise to student. Matt, did you have something you wanted to add to that? Okay. And then along the bottom, you're thinking about delivery, how we actually keep the promise. As Matt said, that's gonna be classes and office hours and advising and all of your special programs and financial aid, any time that you have that person-to-person engagement. And then on the left side, as you are looking for resources, not just in short-term, but really for a long-term commitment to improving retention and student success, we're thinking about things like salaries and people and spaces, tangible evidence, time, processes, technology, workload and I think writing down really specifically on your campus um, those different elements in that triangle may help you not just articulate maybe some frustration or the places where you need to shore some things up but also just help you see it in a really clear way, which is why I like this framework to be able to say, wow, we do a great job in this piece but we're not doing so well in this and we need to have better conversations around that so that is your action item for uh, commitment.
1: So next week, you're talking about expectations.
0: Next week, I will be talking about expectations and these are expectations that we place on students. So it's gonna be really interesting to talk about kind of the, um, you know, there's this play between our responsibility and what we are doing, but also how we invite students into that process. And we show them a lot of respect by saying, um, hey, we need to do these things. I was just talking to someone the other day and they said that they were put in charge of the student conduct office at an institution and they immediately changed the name to students rights and responsibilities, which I love because you know how much I love language. And so just being able to say like, hey, yes, conduct, like, of course, but really, you have a lot of rights, but we also have expectations. You have responsibilities. So oh, it's going to be really good to talk about that next week. Great. Um, thank you guys for joining us. I hope that you are able to find some calm in the middle of this startup in the rhythm of the academic year. I know it's really exciting to have your students on campus. It's also very stressful and there are a lot of them. So we are thinking about you. And if there's something that we can do to be helpful to you, please let us know. Um, and have a great day.
1: Have a great day. Thanks, Rachel.
0: Thanks.